My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Christ is in our midst. May the word of God be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and fitly proclaim the Holy Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. When I was younger, and I lived in Florida, there was this ride at Disney World that I used to really like. But you can't find it anymore, because they changed it into something else. Uh, It was called Alien Encounter. Did anybody ever get a chance to go on Alien Encounter? So at Alien Encounter, it was the best ride at Disney World, and it probably still is. Because let's face it, Disney World's kind of lame. Unless you have kids, then it's awesome for them. Except for Epcot, right? Epcot is like grown-up Disney World. Uh, but you walked into this, this room, right? And you were part of this experiment where the scientist was trying to like bring in these aliens or whatever. And it was one of those sensory rides, right? Where they would have loud light sounds, lights and sounds coming at you from all over the place. And uh, it was really, really intense. And like this alien would appear like in the middle of the room and he would break the glass. When he broke the glass, you could like feel the wind coming out from where the alien was coming from. And then the lights went down. You can hear him running around. It was really, really intense and really, really cool. And after you left, you're like, wow, that's, that was so cool. This alien encounter. And in our culture, we treat the divine that way. We look for these immediate experiences with something that feels like it's divine, right? But when we do that, we wind up creating for ourselves encounters with something less than divine that actually may be pointing us to what is actually divine because when we actually encounter the divine we encounter our Lord Jesus Christ and when we encounter our Lord Jesus Christ then we are changed by his grace when I when I talk about encountering the divine right I don't mean a general sense of oneness with the universe as if the universe has a will or if the the universe even cares about you It can't. Or a sense of wonder when cresting a tall mountain on a hike and appreciating the splendor of nature. No, those are good things, but what I'm referring to is an encounter with the actual God who created the actual universe, who created nature, the God through whom the universe and everything within it maintains its existence. And tied in, with this understanding of encounter with the divine is underlying action to be performed by those who have become recipients of this encounter. So we're going to take a look at the three examples we heard from Gideon, from, uh, um, from St. Paul, and from Simon. And the sermon title this morning is Encounter and Action. When we see Gideon in the reading from Judges, we see him in hiding. He's in a wine press because he's not actually making wine. He is beating out his grain because the Midianites have raided Israel and they're oppressing them and enslaving them and stealing their food. 
And so he's beating out the grain, like separating the wheat from the chaff. He's doing it in a thing that's kind of sunken so no one can actually see what he's doing. He's afraid. As he's doing this, an angel of the Lord appears to him by the terebinth tree. Interestingly, the terebinth tree is the same type of tree that God appears next to when he talks to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord greets Gideon in an interesting way by saying, Hey you, greetings mighty man of valor. On the surface, this looks pretty ludicrous because at this point in the story, Gideon is most definitely not a mighty man of valor. However, he will become a mighty man of valor in short order. And the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, Hey you, this valor that you have, go and save my people. And Gideon is befuddled, rightly so. And he responds, he's like, Me? Me? looks around there's nobody there's no one else around I guess I guess what what are you talking about and he says I'm the least in my father's house like I'm on the socioeconomic hierarchy of our family I'm at the bottom not only that that the clan that I'm from we're the weakest clan in the entire tribe my valor but something happens in the story that moves Gideon from being on the lower levels of the socio-hierarchy in his family and from his clan being the weakest in his tribe to becoming a man of valor that God uses to save his people. And this is a theme we see throughout the scriptures. God calls the weak to become strong. So what changes for Gideon in the story? Well, he gives food to the angel, and the angel does something interesting. He touches the food with his staff. And after he touches the food with the staff, the food is consumed by fire, and the smoke rises up. And as the smoke rises up, the angel rises up, and Gideon starts freaking out. He's like, I've seen God. I'm going to die. And what does God say? God says, peace be to you. It's only after this divine encounter does Gideon then go and do what God has told him to do to save his people. His encounter with God and his actions that follow lead to the redemption of Israel. And he truly becomes a mighty man of valor. And then when we look at St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. St. Paul, he wrote to them and he says, by the way, I'm an apostle. Right, so this means then that he is saying, I'm on the same, I guess we could call it level, right? I'm using air quotes if you're listening online. Saints Peter, James, John, the rest of the 12, I'm on like the same level as them. But there's something about his apostleship that's a little bit different. He notes, he calls himself the least of the apostles. But even while he, he acknowledges that I'm the least of apostles, he also notes that he works harder than all of them. And he's not being prideful or arrogant here. He's not saying, well, Peter, if you really knew Peter, you wouldn't see that he actually doesn't do any work. It's actually Mark that does all the work. Mark actually wrote this for him. <laughs> Lazy Peter. John is so busy always, you know, reclining on Christ that, you know, whatever. <laughs> He's not saying that. He's not overstating. But because he recognizes that he is the least, he was the last called, he has to work harder than the rest of them. Because they had something that he didn't. 
which was walking with Christ while he was physically present. St. Paul wasn't always an apostle. We know that he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And I was thinking about this today. It's more than likely that he was around when Jesus was around. Because we see him standing at the stoning of Stephen, holding everybody's coats while they stone him to death. And this isn't too long after Christ is raised. He was a Pharisee who was so devout that he actually testifies in, I think it's Philippians, he says, I was so devout that according to following the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. That means I performed the Torah perfectly. I followed all of the laws to the letter. I was blameless as regarding the law. But something happened that keeps him, that, that, that moved him from being a Pharisee to eventually becoming an apostle testifying to Jesus. And we know that what happens to him is his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him in glory. And I like to think of it as it doesn't say this, it's just me embellishing a little bit. Jesus knocks him off of his horse. Not like by him slapping him or something, but like with the, like the light, right? We know the story. The light shines and he kind of falls backwards off his horse. I remember, I remember one time I was at a church and I preached a sermon on this and I'm like, and God knocked Paul on his horse. And I got an angry email from somebody saying, God would never knock somebody off anything. I don't like that. Jesus would never knock somebody down. And I'm like, have you read the Gospels? Because there's a bit where he like whips people in the temple, but that's okay. Blinded by the radiance of the risen Christ, Jesus gives him a task and he obeys. His encounter with Jesus Christ, his receiving the grace of God has transformed him and he embraces the unlikely call. Like Gideon, no one would have ever expected God would call the most devout Pharisee to become the most devout follower of Jesus. And so... His consequent action is to labor to deliver the gospel to them and to everyone. He's very open with what he did in the past. He says, I was a persecutor of the church, fighting against church, fighting against Christ himself. Because remember, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? But God has called him to deliver the good news of Jesus to them. The good news that Jesus died for their sins. That Christ was buried. That Christ was raised. That Christ appeared to the apostles and 500 other people. And to James. And then lastly he says to one born out of time to me. And then he says those who stand and hold fast to this gospel. Those are the ones that are being saved. Like Gideon his encounter with Jesus leads him to action. Let's look at Simon in the Gospel of Luke. At the beginning of this story, Jesus arrives on the scene and he's surrounded by a crowd near a large lake. So he sees fishermen cleaning their nets. And this indicates, right, that they're done fishing for the day. They didn't catch anything, so they're cleaning their nets, packing everything up so they can go home and then come back again later. Because anybody will tell you any fisherman worth their salt will tell you the best time to generally go fishing is either early in the morning or at dusk. So they're done for the day. Jesus asks Simon and the other fishermen, hey, take me out onto the lake in the boat so I can speak to the crowd. So they do. 
And Jesus, after finishing speaking to the crowd, he turns to Simon and he says, hey, try putting your net out again. And Simon responds, I mean, I could, but we've been fishing all day. We haven't caught anything, I, I, I guess. And I kind of, and this isn't what it says in scripture, right? But this is in my mind, you just kind of like, eh, just Jesus, eh, throw the nets on the side. Let's just throw it over and get it over with. They throw the nets over the side, and we know the story. They catch a massive amount of fish, so much so that they need help from the people in the other boat that's next to them to gather all of that fish in the boat. And we're, we're meant to juxtapose, right, the crowd on the shore with the empty nets, with the end of the story, the crowd not being part of it, and then the nets being full of fish, and then Jesus saying, I will make you fishers of men. These empty nets are going to catch crowds of people the way that you've caught these fish. And Simon responds by saying to Jesus, depart from me, I am a sinful man. That's an interesting thing to say. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. After his encounter with Jesus, Peter, Simon Peter is left shaken. And I think his response goes very well with the other responses we've seen in the other readings, right? We heard Gideon say, I'm the least of my father's house and my clan is the weakest in the whole tribe. And St. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles because I was a persecutor of the church. And Simon says, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. But does Jesus depart from him though? No. Jesus makes him a disciple. Not only that, he'll become one of the leaders of the disciples. And Jesus is going to teach him how to catch people for the kingdom of God. And we see this, right, in the book of Acts. After the day of Pentecost, Peter is like, he preaches the best sermon of all time. It's so good that 3,000 people are like, yeah, let's do this. They're added to the church in one day. They're converted to Jesus. So... Our, our own divine, or their, their divine encounters and our divine encounter, it reveals something. But then it also enables something. When we encounter the divine, we are encountering Jesus Christ. It reveals who we really are. It reveals who we really are. I'm a coward. How can I go on my valor and save anyone? I'm the least of the apostles because I was a persecutor of the church. I'm a sinful man. But after their encounter with Jesus, something was revealed in them. Now, I'm not saying that what they needed was to see who they really were all along, inside enabling them to do something great and to dream big. No, that's wrong. What they really were inside were sinners who needed the grace of God. That's who any of us are. We are sinners who need the grace of God. We need an infusion of divine grace. We need the gospel of the kingdom. Because who they really were and who we are on the inside is reflected in what Simon says to Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And for many of us, that's our response when we have an encounter with God. We, understood, we understand our sinfulness. We see it. We may have even desired Jesus to leave us alone because having our hearts exposed like that are uncomfortable. Many people 
never turn to Christ, but some people, it takes a while for them. Some people, it takes a while. Some people, after that time, never repent and believe the good news. But many do. But it's uncomfortable because in the light of Christ, we see our own sinfulness. I was listening to a sermon recently by Bishop Robert Barron, and he noted that um, grace magnifies at times, even in the lives of the saints, it magnifies the sense that we might have sometimes of our own unworthiness. It magnifies the sense of our own sinfulness because it helps us then to be open to receiving God's grace. And then when we receive that grace, to cooperate with that grace, his unmerited grace given to us as a gift. It makes us realize that we are not enough. Let me tell you something, you guys watching there. You are not enough. You are not enough. You don't have everything you need inside of you to live your best life. And everything in our culture says that. It says the opposite. You are enough. All you need to do is discover who you really are inside. And then once you realize that you can see that you have everything you need. You don't need anything else. Jeanette's not here so I can talk about this. So in... Um, Sorry, Jeanette, if you're watching, I know you probably are. Right, so this is a dumb illustration, right? I like movies. So in one of the recent Star Wars movies, The Last Jedi, which was one of the worst Star Wars movies of all time, right? The, the, the main character, Rey, she goes to Luke to become a Jedi, right? He doesn't want to train her because now he's a cranky old man for some reason. Anyway, there's these books that, that have like these ancient Jedi texts, right? So in the movie, the texts get struck by lightning and they burn up and they burn away. And then one of the characters says, they don't really need those texts, those ancient texts. They don't really have anything helpful to give. She, she already has, she already knows enough. She already has what she needs inside her along this whole time. And brother says, that's wrong, right? None of us can function that way. None of us can function in the world that way. We can't just discard everything and then just begin afresh and think we can just forge our own life without the foundation of anything, right? Especially our faith. We don't have enough inside of us. We are not enough because we, when we encounter the divine grace of God, we realize that we are sinners, that we are unworthy in need of his salvation. This encounter with the divine after revealing our hearts to something else, it then enables our obedient action. Jesus doesn't cast us away after exposing our hearts. After we figure out that we're not enough, after we figure out there's, we don't have everything inside of us that we need, we can then obey. We can then turn and follow him. He doesn't cast us away in our sinfulness. He forgives our sinfulness. He doesn't cast us away in our unworthiness and say, you're so unworthy, you're literally the worst, get out of here. No, what does he do? He forgives us. He makes us holy. He makes us righteous. He makes us worthy. He calls us into right relationship with him as his children. 
as one of the company of those he has redeemed. And then after all of our self-doubts and after all of our untrue self-conceptions of identity are done away with, then we gain our true identity in him as his beloved, as our sins are forgiven, as our priorities are reordered, and we are enabled to go forth in service to Jesus. And I also think it's worth a minute to talk about Gideon's cakes being you know, touched by fire in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And I think we can see here a reference to Holy Communion, to the Eucharist. And the Holy Communion and the Eucharist, this is a way that we encounter the divine, that we encounter God himself. If you want to know more about this, I did a whole sermon series last summer on John 6. You can go back and listen to it on, on, on the website. As we are called to partake of Christ's one holy, once for all sacrifice, Christ, God's grace is given to us. And we leave here strengthened, encouraged, forgiven, worthy, righteous, and holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower, as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.